What do you call that noise? It was on the 12th of February 1982 that English Settlement was released to the world. 40 years on, we're reuniting two of the people who made it happen. Hello, my name is Mark Fisher, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to this very, very special edition of What Do You Call That Noise? the XDC podcast. I'll introduce my guests in just a second, but not before I extend my thanks to all of the generous supporters on Patreon who keep the podcast going. They include Pink Things, Humble Daisies, and the Knights in Shining Karma, who I'll name check at the end of this episode. If you'd like to be one of them, and of course you'd like to be one of them, please go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher to sign up. And if you haven't yet bought your copy of What Do You Call That Noise? an XTC Discovery book... Now would be a very good time to head along to xdclimelight.com and do so. What do you call that noise? Now, a few months ago, my guest on What Do You Call That Noise was Andy Partridge. And during our conversation, we talked about Seesaw, which will be on the forthcoming EP, My Failed Songwriting Career, Volume 2. That led us to speculate on items of playground equipment that had not appeared in XTC songs, among them, the climbing frame. Well, listener Ed Stainsbury considered that we had thrown down the gauntlet of rock and that he would be the one to pick it up. Thanks to XTC, we now have a playground and a seesaw, and thanks to Ed, over by that English roundabout, is a climbing frame. It sounds like this. You've got playground, you've got seesaw, I'm trying to think of a slide, is the, it's about the only thing. Oh, climbing, man, climb, I... climbing frame is the only thing left. Yeah, <laughs> it's really mad. I've been thinking all day about the climbing frame. I've been praying for the sun, but the clouds still rain. Every day I make a brand new start, try to get things off the ground. But I know. That was Climbing Frame by Ed Stainsby, inspired by this very podcast. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've ever been sampled. 
Thank you, Ed. You can hear that song in full on Ed's YouTube page, where he is known as Fog99Horn. Fog99Horn. I can feel a challenge coming on. If this podcast has inspired you to write a song in the same way that it inspired Ed, I'd love to hear it. To make it clear, this is not a call out for pastiche XTC songs, but it is a call for songs with a connection to something that has been said in the podcast. So get writing and send your instant tunes to mark at xtclimelight.com. Mark at xtclimelight.com. What do you call that noise? Um, in last month's episode, we looked at English settlement from the outside in. This time, we're looking at it from the inside out. Helping me do so is Sue Charles. Hello, Sue. Hi, Mark. Hello. Sue, great to have you on the on the podcast again, actually, Sue. Um, Sue is a BBC broadcaster and an XDC fan of old. And I'm just wondering, Sue, what, what are your memories of discovering English settlement? Did you, did you hear it like in 1982 or was it later that you picked up on it? I did. I did, actually, Mark. Yes, like you say, I'm a BBC music journalist, but long before any of that, I'm an XTC fan. And for me, I guess um, Senses Working Overtime was uh, was the first XTC single I really became aware of as, as quite a young kid. So that was the uh, the gateway single to English settlements. And so I think that's the, it's a special album for me because it was the first XTC album I became aware of. And then, of course, you go searching back, you discover Drums and Wires and Black Sea. And, and it's just, um, it, it, for me, it was a fabulously, a fabulous introduction to XTC. Yeah, I think thinking of gateway singles is the best way of thinking of XTC because they, it is like a gateway drug, isn't it? Once you've got one, you 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 you're, you're led you're my further drug. and further astray. You're my drug is, is exactly right. Yeah, the Duke special. <laughs> um, well, great to have you on, Sue. Um, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast Hugh Padgham. Hello, Hugh. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Uh, Hugh, of course, was English Settlements producer, engineer, and mixer. His credits also include The Police, Sting, Phil Collins, Genesis, Peter Gabriel, The Human League, Paul McCartney, Kate Bush, and many, 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 many more. Uh, so it's great to have Hugh back on again, as it is to have our very own guitargonaut, Dave Gregory. Hello, hello, Dave. Hello, hello. Nice to be back. Nice to have you back again. And I keep on saying welcome back because it is. this just seems re- remarkable. It's less than 18 months since Hugh and Dave were on the podcast talking about the 40th anniversary of of Black Sea. And so it it does seem phenomenal that in that short time that I've just made a few podcasts, that seems to have been as much as I've done in the past few months, you were able to, as XTC, write and record around 20 songs, as well as touring Australasia, North America twice, and the UK twice. In fact, I saw you live twice in that short period, and you produced English Settlement. I mean, Dave, does it does it seem as phenomenal to you to think back at your work rate at that time? It does, but then it was uh, very easy because we were that much younger and dafter, so it was uh, you know second nature to us. Yeah, let's go out and play some music and and have fun, do all the stuff we dreamt of doing when we were learning to play and going to school and all the rest of it. But to be fair, the songwriting, uh, the, the plethora of new songs, certainly wasn't down to me. That was Andy Partridge and Colin as well, as he certainly uh, kept his end up as well. Between the two of them, they continued to provide, you know, dozens of wonderful uh, sonic opportunities for a guitar player like me and uh, and Terry as well. We all, that's what kept the band together was there was never any shortage of material to work on. And uh, so, uh, you know, I have to hand it to Andy and Colin 
for just constantly being able to, to to come up with fresh material. It must have been exhausting because, you know, by sort of 1982, almost like Prince levels of productivity from XTC. It, yeah, I mean, but as I say, we were that bit younger. I don't think any of us could do it today. It's It's very easy to look back and think, how did we do it? But now I'm closer to 70 than 60. That's kind of an obvious question. But then we were sort of kind of, uh, you know, when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, full of energy and um, and mad for it. It's It was second nature and it was basically what we wanted to do. It was, uh, it was very easy. Uh, in terms of it didn't feel like work, you know, because you're doing what you've always dreamt of doing. You're doing what comes most naturally to you. and uh, and sort of getting paid for it. We didn't get paid very much, but we had enough to get by. And, uh, well, of course, the the financial considerations weren't the primary motive, not for any of us. We just wanted to make music and go out and show off. Do you know what I find funny about doing this podcast is that it's longer ago that we recorded than my age at the time. (laughs) yeah me too in in other words it's nearly 40 years since we recorded that and i was i was only 26 at the time yeah you've had several lifetimes since or Mm. i know it's crazy to think it's closer to world war ii than it than it is to today oh my god yes yes. can't think of it in those terms do you know what though i can remember quite a lot about those sessions remarkably at the manor because we, because it was fresh, wasn't it? It's kind of uh, we were, I don't know. I suppose that our synapses were more sensitive and receptive to uh, what what all the stimuli that was around at the time. Plus, it was a magical time of year. It was autumn. It was a particularly pleasant autumn, as I remember. Uh, every day seemed to be a sunny day. The leaves were changing colour. We were the most beautiful part of the country, in leafy Oxfordshire. Well, I don't remember that because I was in the control room all day yes, yeah. with no windows. <laughs> but uh, it certainly was, um, yeah, there was magic in the air, as they say. D- David White had a good question in the last podcast, which was what, uh, w- whether there was one image that you associated with the with that recording period I, I don't know Hugh what, what you when you say that you remember it well what what is there like a crystallizing image that you have in your head when you think about those English settlements sessions well for me it was quite exciting because I had been lucky enough to engineer the previous two XTC albums which I you know I loved as you know not just because I was involved but you know I, I, I just always loved XTC so to end up being sort of co-producer with the band as well. It was very exciting for me because it was actually one of the first few records that I had sort of co-produced. You know, I first got into it from, you know, working with Phil Collins and and that was only a year or so earlier. So I was still quite sort of... um, Well, I don't know about green, I was going to say, but, you know, just going into the studio with a band who you loved um was you know it it was like I was like um you know 
a pig in shit or whatever they say. <laughs> Hugh, Hugh, I noticed that you, you must have clearly loved working with XTC. What were they like working with compared to other bands? Well, there was a fantastic sort of humour around the whole time, don't you think, Dave? Definitely. Yeah, it was it was peculiar only to XTC, I have to say. And our upbringing in Swindon, which was pretty earthy, it wasn't... It wasn't terribly intellectual, was it, the humour? Let's put it that way. It was fairly basic <laughs> yeah, schoolboy yeah. stuff, but, but, it, but was, it, was, it was hilarious. You know, I mean, you, you look back now and hear about the problems that Andy was beginning to have about, you know, not wanting to tour and his, his, his torments and, and stuff, but it didn't really seem to be prevalent in the studio did it as far as I remember no, he was... and don't forget I was sort of you know any any band that you work with you 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 know like um drums and wires took one month to make and then you go off on tour so I've known you for four weeks as a band and it's a very intense four weeks and then and then Black Sea probably took another couple of weeks more but that's still, you know, not very much. And then we get together. So, and we never saw each other in between albums, really, because you're off on tour and I'm doing another album. So it's it's hardly like we were the oldest buddies. But there was just something for me about the camaraderie of that band that was, um, you, you know, it was just really, really good fun. We worked hard, but it was always a laugh. Do you, do you remember... Um, on Saturday nights, we used to have sort of a night off and get a case of or crate of beer down from the pub. And then you would do your impressions of, of Led Zeppelin and, and Jimi Hendrix and all that. And, and, yeah. and, and Andy would, would um, take his trousers off, do you remember, and hitch his pants up and do his impression of a, of a, um, a, a sumo wrestler. <laughs> Do you remember that? I do remember one or two occasions when that might have happened. Yes, certainly. Do you but, know? Do you know this is this is great for us fans to hear because uh, you know it, it English settlement sounds quite a grown up album, but uh, maybe the studio experience was slightly different. Well, that's interesting. You should say that because yeah, it, you're right. It is a lot of the, if you read the lyrics and listen to the the the, the way the uh, the thing it's, it's really put together and written in quite a an intelligent way. I'm happy to say that most of the songs on there do do us credit as uh, thinkers, but you know we were still basically silly schoolboys at the end of the day. There was that odd yeah. dichotomy, but like you were saying about Andy. Uh, he he was at his happiest in the studio. As long as he was creating, he was doing something creative and not having to go out and, as he saw it, work. He was he was happy and uh, and and that happiness would always come out in a number of interesting ways. Well, ter and Terry was just always a laugh a, a second, really, wasn't he? He had a certain bucolic sense of humour that, uh, yeah, it was... It was uh, just another piece of the of the jigsaw. Well, he's a huge piece of the jigsaw, really. His drumming was a big part part of the personality of the band. And, yeah. Um, but but again, he had a sort of very 
very rural outlook on life. And uh, he didn't didn't suffer fools gladly, and uh, and spoke his mind whenever it was necessary. So that was that was kind of always refreshing. <laughs> and spoke it in a, in a very good Swindon accent as well. Oh yes. And the fact of being residential in the manor did that uh, affect the atmosphere and the sort of work ethic? Because you were you know you were on site, and that was what you were there to do. It never felt like work, did it, Hugh? Not what he might must have done to you because you didn't really get a break because you were chained to the desk. But for me, well, it was like the best yeah, I... ho- holiday you could possibly have. I mean, uh, yes, there was work to do. But there was also quite a lot of time off if you if you weren't singing or playing. It was time to go for walks and uh, enjoy the scenery. Yeah. In years after that, I came to not particularly like working in residential studios because of the um, onerous hours and that sort of thing. But um, for English Settlement, I think it was one of the first one of the first records I made at the Manor. I think, and and we'd just built that new stone room on the back um a la townhouse sort of thing so it, it opened up lots of new possibilities from a from a sound point of view especially the drums and um so i i i didn't mind at all i mean the the the, the most difficult thing i can remember was towards the end of the session when i think colin had a cold or something and he was having problems you know he, he lost his voice at one point and, and couldn't sing and we you know we were always under the cosh in terms of time it's got to be finished by such and such a date because the next session's booked in or whatever reason it was and I remember sometimes feeling a bit stressed with um, Colin not being um, a- able to sing at one point I mean he managed it although I think listening to the album I, I could hear a little bit of um Colin's cold on fly on the wall the last couple of songs that he wrote on on the album an English roundabout although fly on the wall I don't know you know it's all fuzzed up the sound of his vocals anyway but whether we did that partly to disguise it I, I don't know but also listening to the record as as i as I did sort of this morning, just trying to catch up a bit. I, I've always been slightly worried that the vocals are mixed a bit low in the mix. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, Dave, or if anybody else has well, I, I on actually, our podcast um, thought, thought that. I kind of felt the, the vocals were fine, that they were balanced with the band. I think a, a lot of the time the vocals were too loud. This is how I, we all hear music differently. Also, um, I felt that perhaps my guitars could have been worked on a little longer to get them sort of more warmer and tone rich. Uh, they were a little bit spiky and thin, but that was part of the sound of the band. And I know we were working with acoustic guitars and electric 12 string and blending those things uh, on, on quite a number of the songs. But as a guitar player, you know, you always want your fader to be pushed all the way up. And that didn't really that's not that's not the case although I I, I kind of uh, I never I never had a problem ever hearing vocals on an XTC album there was always uh, okay. they were always right in your face but I mean I would I would always love to 
remix not just XTC records but other you know other records with what you know now and the technology has got better and so on and you could spend longer doing it but it 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 wouldn't sound the same oh. and and it would it probably to most people it wouldn't sound any better either and that's I right think no it's, it's it's how you remember it at the time you have to leave it for yeah. what it what it was really and we did the best we could for, for what it's worth Hugh I, I thought they sounded great but particularly I think on English Settlement there are more I suppose pastoral songs so on the quieter songs I, I think the the vocals really stand out oh good yeah. okay yeah it's never occurred to me either yeah it's you're always paranoid about your own work aren't yes, you every time and how does it, I mean, listening us again to, uh, today, Hugh, what other impressions did you have uh, after however long it is since you've listened to it? Well, from a from a sonic point of view, I think it, um, and again, I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet, but I think it sounds really good 40 years later. And I think, you know, we were using very, very good equipment and it was still all analog in those days so it was done on a 24 track two inch analog tape recorder and a very good one at that an ampex mm 1200 which was a great great sounding machine and the console was a helios console which was custom built very expensive console that sounded fantastic as well plus all the the range of very good microphones and all that sort of thing and mixed down to stereo analog as well whereas today everything's done in pro tools and 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 digital and i'm convinced it makes a big difference but most importantly what struck me listening through to the album is actually how incredible every single guy in that band can play uh, their instruments so well it was not no one was was a um you know some bands there's always somebody who's not quite as good as you know somebody else or 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 whatever but i mean the 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 drums the bass the guitars the singing is all they're just it's all so well played, Dave. Well, thanks, Hugh. I'm, uh, well, it's very flattering to hear a studio engineer throw compliments at a musician because that doesn't happen very often, you know. Not certainly not at the sessions, but it's very <laughs> nice you should say that. Thank you very much because we did work hard. We rehearsed and rehearsed before we even came to the studio. We spent, uh, well, from late summer, mid August through to October the 5th, I think, was the day we loaded into the manor. Mm. Those two months were spent every day or five days a week rehearsing and learning the songs and experimenting and actually also getting to learn to play our new instruments because you have to remember uh, Andy had a new acoustic guitar, Colin bought a fretless bass, and uh, I had this Rickenbacker 12-string, which is to this day a pig to play. It's a horrible thing. but because of the sound it makes, you're happy to work away at it. And yeah. um, and that was, it sort of brings its own reward in that regard. But uh, certainly, certainly we were very um, well prepared before we went in because we knew we had a big job ahead of us following Black Sea. And we knew we had to do something that was uh, 
going to be slightly different and it had to be as good as if not better than 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 the uh, the, the almost hit album that we had i think terry is a very underrated drummer i yep. think he was amazing i don't remember using click tracks or anything on the on the backing tracks do you of any of those songs well we had to uh, fabricate a click track for melt the guns that was the only song that used anything resembling a click and that was something that uh, I think you made a tape loop of Terry uh, doing a something with his sticks. Uh, it was like a little clickety clickety thing. Oh yeah, thing. is it that song that's that's got a drum uh, sequence there, isn't it, or something? Oh, you had that Tama sniper synthesizer thing. It was like a trigger. You hit a you you had like a little s- sensor that you placed on the drum head, and when you hit it, it would trigger a signal to a synthesizer. Oh, that's right. And I'm also it. thinking of it's nearly Africa because that yeah. that had a sort of um, didn't that have a drum synthesizer drum pattern? Uh, I think no, it had. We were trying to get it. We were trying to play that as a band, and I remember this distinctly. We were trying to play it in the studio, and something kept happening where it kept breaking down and Terry was getting more and more frustrated. <laughs> and he said, look, I'm going to play this drum track. It's just one part all the way through. I'm going to play it. You lock can off outside. Wait till I'm on. Then when I've done it, you can come back in and then you can add your parts. So he, he, he went through it and I think he did it in a single pass. That tom-tom pattern. And yeah. you recorded it. And uh, after about five minutes, he said, all right, Terry, that's enough. And uh, that would have been, you'd have edited that as the master basic rhythm. And we played on top of it. But it was basically, Terry felt that he was being distracted by us. Either we were messing up or, uh, you know, there was something, something was happening that he wasn't comfortable with. So he decided that he'd do the drum track first on his own. And we we could come in once that was done. But as I say, he did it in a single pass, and we came yeah. back in like sort of ten minutes later, and it was done. So yeah, uh, yeah. he was like a human drum. Yes, machine. he was. He really, really was, and he was determined that um, it would be right, no matter what what method we used to get it right. It would be right, and he would not be blamed for any fault in that recording. You know, he's determined yeah. this. It's so much, so much pride in his work, and I say yeah. fair play to him for that. He's now put a band together to go out and perform live, and uh, he's got these guys with him now, and they're going to be touring the UK in March, and I think they're going to the States in the spring as well. So we'll see what happens with that. Wow, yeah. what's the band they're called XTC, E-X-T-C, <clears throat> and um, I saw them uh, in Portsmouth when they first uh, got together, and they were fantastic, so um, I think they'll do very well. And, and any inclination that, that, that anyone else might, might join in there, Mark? Or? Well, let's ask Dave Gregory. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, no, I won't be, uh, I personally won't be, and I, and I know Andy won't, because he's, uh, I think he's got, um, well, he just doesn't want to do it and he's got hearing issues, I believe. That's that's the excuse he always gives nowadays for not wanting to perform anywhere. Uh, he's He's got some hearing problems and he doesn't want his hearing to be damaged any more than it is. And so that's the reason he doesn't want to be standing on a stage next to a drummer or anyone else for that matter. But yeah. then again, he never really was... Uh, it's, it's extraordinary because as a performer... Back when we were touring, I never, ever saw anyone harder on stage 
delivering a vocal and guitar and just come off stage drenched in sweat. Uh, and But I cannot imagine that, that that guy still exists, you know, as, as sad as it is. And is just at home in his comfort zone, writing his songs, playing guitar, singing in his shed. And uh, so good luck to him. He's fine. He's, he's worked hard enough over time. And I don't think uh, I don't think he owes anybody anything. David, I think I might speak for XTC fans of a certain age here who were who were always too young to see you play live. And uh, and then when you hear of, I suppose a lot of your contemporaries like Squeeze, Blondie, uh, um, the Police have all done the reunion gigs. There must have been the offers. There, there must have been a temptation. There probably. I don't know whether. See, the thing is, offers. When you say offers, they're like carrots on the end of sticks. People can throw sums of money at you and offers of uh, great things. But when it actually comes down to it, uh, the the, the promises are quickly forgotten and you find yourself rehearsing for another money-losing tour uh, that uh, no one's going to buy tickets for. Yeah, there's there's a, a nation of fans out there who would love to see the original lineup back together or even, you know, the Black Sea lineup or Drums and Wires lineup, whichever one, and would be happy to pay money to see us play. But it's not it's not something that's um, because because money was never, as I say, a motivating factor, not for any of us. It's down to how badly do we need to do this now? Do we really want to be because uh, it's actually hard work to, doing a tour. Is hard work and and rehearsing maybe for six weeks just for a single concert. It's a waste of time, really, just to just to play maybe one or two theatrical shows. Uh, you either do that or you go out on the road for a month, which none of us really want to do because we're just too old. Simple as that. But there have been when you say offers, the offers we never really took them that seriously. You know, it was just. Um, yeah, we know people want to see us, but uh, I'm afraid it's <laughs> we've had enough. <laughs> That's fair enough, Dave. I was saying a minute ago how brilliant you all are um, technically with your instruments and stuff. And I wanted to say about, you know, we talked about Terry. And for me, any good band has to have a good rhythm section. It's like... It's like your skeleton. It's the you know the spine that everything else has to hang off. Guitars, vocals, whatever. If the if the rhythm section isn't good, then the band isn't good, as far as I'm concerned. And the best bands have always had you know great rhythm sections. And a bit like um, you know you never really talk about Bill Wyman in the Rolling Stones. People don't talk about Colin as being, I think, world-class bass player. Mm-hmm. You listen to the bass lines on that record or on any XTC record, but particularly on English Settlement, where I think was one of the first times he started playing with fretless bass as well. His bass lines are literally unbelievably good, world-class. He is certainly highly rated among bass players. And I, I always loved what he's playing. Um, 
and you know he has also has a very good singing voice. It's, it's still there. When he put that scattered uh, record out a couple of years ago, the TC and I EP, I was so impressed with the sound of his voice. But like you say, I, I always loved his bass playing. The only problem I had with him was on stage, it was so loud, and uh, it really uh, the way the the bass frequencies cover everything on, on in, in a small area, like a stage, for example, or a relatively small area. If it's too loud, everything gets swamped in this horrible sort of low-mid mush. And uh, that used to create a few problems when it came to sound checks, balancing vocals, because, of course, the singers couldn't really hear themselves. Those, those wedge monitors would be so loud, and I still have hearing problems in one ear because of a side fill that was that was installed in 1981 for, you know, because they, Andy and Colin couldn't hear themselves singing. And part of the reason for that was how loud Colin played. But bless him, he is a great bass player. He's a fine musician. He's really, really uh, underrated, as you say. Bass players very rarely get credited for the work that they do. I mean, even Paul McCartney, who is one of, to me, one of the finest pop bassists ever, it, it's always secondary to his songwriting and singing. And uh, yes, obviously, bass players recognise how brilliant he is. But it's not the, the thing that grabs your attention when you first hear, say, a Beatles record or even a, a McCartney and Wings album. Uh, you kind of discover the bass later on. And I think that's probably what happens with XTC as well. Um, he's... Uh, he always chooses his notes very, very carefully. Then he never takes the obvious route, but it always works. And, um, you know, to, there were a couple of occasions where I've had to change some of the chord voicings of my parts to match what he was doing, which was fine. You know, I didn't mind, but it, 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 was, uh, it, was, it, it was, like I say, an interesting, an interest, he always took an interesting path through a song. Yeah, definitely. And of course, in the studio, it's a different thing. So, you, you know, you don't have a big yeah. bass stack in the studio. I didn't really ever know that about your live thing. In the studio, it might have either been a small amp or a recording amp or even just a DI. Yeah. In the studio, we're all recording separately at our own levels. So it's not an issue. The volume thing is never an issue. Um, but no. you know, when you're sort of uh, when you're determined to create some excitement, you feel you've got to have as much volume as you as you can get away with, and that can sometimes be an issue. Colin did quite like that sort of very deep sounding kind of bass, didn't he? You know, he wasn't the sort of guy who would put uh, wire wound strings on particularly. Well, it's what he used to call a basal surround. We want more basal surround, which I think what he meant was more third and low mids and that sort of nice warm yeah. essence that supports. So it's like a big mattress that supports the rest of. It. But I bet he was a. I bet he uh, hero worshipped um, Rob Robbie Shakespeare, who just died. Yeah, very sadly. I think Sly and Robbie. I think probably Colin's biggest influence, bass playing wise, was was probably McCartney. Uh, but he, we was, he was certainly into all the all the bases. Remember the late seventies, early eighties. Reggae was big, wasn't it, in this country? Mm. And there were a lot of uh, a lot of those reggae grooves centered around simple drum parts and the bass. And mm. like you say, Robbie Shakespeare was king of that kind of style. 
along with yeah. Bernard Edwards from Chic, who we used to do, uh, used to run through a few Chic rhythm tracks at sound checks when we were on the road. Things like <laughs> Spacer and and Le Freak, and just yeah. just for the hell of uh, enjoying the groove, you know. <laughs> Much to the disappointment of the support acts who couldn't wait to get on and do their sound check. We'd be wasting time running old sheet grooves. And then that sort of reggae influence comes into songs as, as like to a lesser or greater extent. Something like Knuckle Down has quite a sort of reggae-ish lilt to it. I think you can hear that there, can't you? It's got a nice lope, hasn't it? It's got a lovely mm. sort of... Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, he's very... Um, there are certain musicians... When they pick up an instrument, you know, as soon as you watch them play, they, you know that that's what they're there to do. That's that's their job. That's what they're born to be doing, really. And Colin is one of those players. You know, he's got a, picks up a bass, he starts playing, and you can see just from watching him, he's not really thinking that too hard about what he's doing. It's just happening. And that's uh, the mark of a of a true musician, I think this relationship with the instrument. Hugh was just saying that, that that you'd all grown into great musicians by this point, I guess several years in. It sounds, English Settlement sounds like a, the band, the sound of a band really growing in confidence. Do you think you'd you'd sort of flipped from feeling like kids who'd got lucky to, to professional musicians? It was almost like this was your job at this point. Definitely. We were kind of, as I said, we'd had this, this album, Black Sea, that was, becoming a big hit we knew we had to follow it with something special and also having done a 1980 you know we were on the road for most of that year when we weren't rehearsing and recording black sea six months after the release of the album we were pretty much on the road full time playing these big gigs with uh, the likes of the police and the cars in the states and playing to these huge audiences and not going down too badly at all. You know, actually the Cars gigs, that's a, that was a separate issue. That wasn't our audience at all. Certainly the police crowd loved us and did us no end of good. So we came off that tour uh, the end of 1980 feeling um, a lot more self-confident and a, and, a, and a lot more professional because we sort of, we we played the huge arenas, albeit as a support act. And, and come away without getting bottled off. <laughs> we felt. You, you, you know, you know, you are responsible for getting me the gig of working with the police. That's right. I believe, uh, yes, Sting, because we we shared a bus with them on the last American tour in, in November 1980, and uh, we got quite friendly with them. And Sting was very curious about. Uh, he obviously must have heard the Black Sea album and liked the way it sounded. So he, he asked Andy who the recording engineer was. Of course, it was you. So Andy passed on your details, I believe, to, to Sting. And the rest is history. If, if you like, Drums and Wires was Wires and Drums. Uh, Black Sea was even more Wires and even more Drums. And then the band come to you, the band that you've got very familiar with. And suddenly here, with as you've already said, the, with the fretless basses and the acoustic guitars and so on. Was that uh, a surprise to you that that, that um, this sort of new acoustic feel was, was, was coming for a band that had looked as though it might even have been getting heavier and heavier? Not, not that I remember... I remember, I mean, don't forget, I, I, I only heard the songs for, ooh, I think probably the first time in the studio. 
I do remember us going for um, a get together dinner at um, Highworth. Do you remember? Oh yeah. And I th- there was a pub in Highworth or a hotel, and I remember we had a sort of pre-recording dinner yes. there. Oh, yes, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that's right. I think it might have been the Jesmond House in Highworth, which is still there. Yeah. actually, that hotel. Is it? But I, I don't remember. I, I remember it being more of a social than uh, than me listening to the demos. Yes, we wouldn't have inflicted the demos off. Did you even have demos? Uh, yeah, I believe there were demos. Yes, I think they. Andy and Colin had Porter Studio recorders, the little four track Porter Studios yeah. that were all the go with but, the cassettes. Yes, well, but going back to um, Mark's question. No, I don't. I don't remember, you know, with the fact that there were more acoustic instruments and things. It just they all complemented the songs. You know, the guys would start playing a song. I don't know, yacht dance or something, and it was just you, you, you got got out the instruments that you had uh, uh, agreed to play, and and kind of off it went. I suppose. But a note from my. Uh notebook here the first song we actually got to work on when we loaded into the manor was down in the cockpit which was pretty much uh, you know xdc fair you had terry's drum track i think it was terry was the unifying factor between the black sea period and the english settlement uh, style the drums remained the same uh, and so it probably didn't sound that different to you, Hugh, from from that. Uh... That's that's true. Actually, that song, I when I was making a few notes when we were uh, when I was listening to the album earlier, I got down as good fun, quirky XTC. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it is really, isn't it? Yes. I have to say, though, to be honest, that's my least favourite song on the record. But it was. Uh, I think it would have benefited from just not going quite as fast maybe if we'd slowed it down a couple of bps per m it might have improved matters but uh, that said it's that's only a small criticism yeah and what is your favorite song i think my favorite is jason and the argonauts ah but i like yacht dance as well and of course senses working overtime is uh you know the indoor for a lot of people not just sue lots of people who came to xcc through that song so it's been, a, you know, very, very good, uh, a very good introductory motif, shall we say. Yeah. Dave, how sharp is your memory about hearing these songs for the first time? I'm just like the first time you ever heard Senses Working Overtime. Can you can you remember that moment? Not really, because the, it would have been <clears throat> part of the rehearsal process for the album in the, in the little studio in Swindon when we were just sitting around in a, a circle with our cassette recorders What's next? What have you got? What are we doing now? It would have been just one of those. And um, Andy would have had this his acoustic guitar and said, uh, right, when it starts like this, it's got this sort of medieval kind of, I want it to sound a bit sort of like something from the Middle Ages, like a little folk mummer, almost like a, a little English folk ensemble. And then uh, when the chorus arrives, that's when the band kicks in and it and uh, all hell lets loose. That would have been roughly the uh, the instruction. 
but we would have kicked it around and uh, and worked out different parts and but i can't i can't honestly say when did, when was when was i first aware of this song andy may well have sent a cassette around before we even got into the rehearsal room you know with a few rough sketches as he often did and can can you men, uh, remember in more general terms both the songs that Andy was coming up with and that Colin was coming up with, uh, uh, you know, your 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 reaction to hearing all of these songs for the first time? Well, my initial reaction would have been sheer relief, the fact that we weren't going to be going under for lack of material. <laughs> there was always plenty. There was almost like an embarrassment of riches there. You know, it's too much choice. Sometimes you can have too much choice. That's one reason why the album's a double album. We didn't feel comfortable about throwing anything out. And also, you know, this was pre-CD days. And one of the reasons it became a double album was technical, really, because we knew we had an embarrassment of riches of good songs and they wouldn't have really fitted on to one single album, although I know in America it became a single album, didn't it? But some songs were dropped. But, um, you know, to, to to have three or four songs per side meant we could get a louder level onto the disc and it, and it sound better. Yes. And so that was, um, from a technical point of view, I was really happy about yeah. that. We were able to. We were lucky that we were able to convince Virgin to put it out that way, you know, because it was, you know, they had to ship twice as much vinyl uh, for roughly the same price. Uh, it would have cost them more money to to market, uh, but like I say it, it, not, it, it sounded so much better having that much more groove space on one side of a disc. It'd make for a mm. much better listening experience. Plus the fact you mentioned yeah. that you mastered it, the stereo mix was done to a one-inch tape running at 30 IPS, which is really high yes. spec. And I think that was probably the first, I'm not, I might be wrong, um, but it, I'm, you know, it must have been one of the first albums that was actually finally mastered that way. I don't know. Yeah. Because, of course, it, it uses up so much more tape. And, again, the record company yeah. wouldn't have uh, felt too comfortable about shelling out any more money than they had to. I know, God. When you think of it now, no one, no one thinks of you know. If you go into the studio now on Pro Tools, I mean, memory is so cheap. Whereas a roll of just one roll of tape in those days lasted for either fifteen or thirty minutes, depending on what speed you were going. And even in those days, it was probably a couple of hundred quid a roll. So the cost of of the studio, even though it was owned by Virgin, and the um, cost of tape would probably be more than the budget of a whole album these days. Yeah, it would. But um, just quickly going back as well, because I do think Senses Working Overtime is a masterpiece. And for me, it it goes into the list of the, you know, the, the best songs I've ever you know, had the... Um... Well, you created it, you. Let's not forget that. And and it, I think it was really brave of Virgin Records to even put it out as a 45, because it's not the most obvious... Uh, that little plunky acoustic guitar isn't exactly an attention grabber, not the most obvious one anyway. And, um, you know, mm. to expect radio play with a song that begins like that, 
maybe they thought, well, this will give the DJ something to chat over. <laughs> <laughs> and it begins. And then the other thing I remember is the very end. You know, the crow at the very end. Oh, yeah. And in, and in, and in those days, you had to get a, a sound effects record. BBC sound effects records. That's right. Country noises or something like that. <laughs> Did you know, it sounds possibly like you didn't then, Dave, that that was going to be such a big hit? No, we knew we had a piece of quality. We knew it was, uh, but it, there was this thing about, yeah, well, it'll probably be too good for the charts. That's probably how we thought about it at the time. Luckily, we were able to get onto Top of the Pops. I mean, that's what shifted it. That's what shifts ev- shifted everything in those days. You've got yeah. an appearance on top of the pops. If your record didn't sell, you've only got yourselves to blame, boys. So uh, <laughs> you better put on a decent show. And um, yeah, so that was really it. Getting that song on top of the pops, and uh, and then it was there was a slight edit as well in the middle of it to make it radio playable because I think you know the the, the full radio friendly yes yeah, right radio friendly it was always lovely when you heard occasionally the album version on the radio with the the extra lines the buses might skid on black ice it was uh, uh you, you always it was it's always good when you feel like you've got a, a slightly different version from the album to the single like you've got that that added extra yes that's right and it's also um I think nowadays because uh I, most of the time you'd hear it on the radio today, you probably would get the full version because that's what, you know, is in most radio stations' libraries, I would I would guess. I think probably the single edit is confined pretty much to the original 45. But whatever, whatever it took, uh, it got to number 10 in the charts. That was the highest position we'd ever achieved. And um, as I say, it just, just welcomed in a whole new bunch of listeners. Does it feel wrong in a way that that was your only top 10 single? It's it's hard to believe. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I agree. <laughs> I just think it's a terrible shame that we weren't appreciated a little more uh, generously at the time. But some of these things take a while to grow. It's just, uh, I don't know, we're, we were, it, it's possible that the other singles weren't as strong. Or maybe, as I said, they were too good for the charts. No, I agree, they were. They were too good for the charts. Did it feel to you, Hugh, that it was going to be an obvious hit single? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I remember absolutely loving it. And But, uh, you know, when you're producing a record of how many songs we did, you know, 15 or 16 songs, and you're working on them all, all the time. It's very difficult to be objective about that sort of thing. I think the um, the producer and the band are probably the last people that should, you know, pick the singles. I remember playing the record, whether it was finished or not, I remember Simon Draper coming down to the studio and being unbelievably impressed with with what um we had done do you remember that dave i remember a few visits from from record but the great thing about the the manor was that uh, it was far enough away from london where you didn't get a lot of visitors uh i'm not saying that we didn't welcome people it's just that they are a distraction when you're trying to work uh simon draper was always um, in our corner. He was a, g- a good guy. I, I, I kind of liked him a lot. He, he was very supportive. 
and he gave us a lot of uh, wiggle room when a lot of bands would have been given their marching orders for, for yeah. some of the you know didn't he's a really good guy yeah and I heard him on um, a podcast recently what's his name from Heaven Seventeen Martin where Martin's got a podcast hasn't he. Yeah, it must be his then. Mm-hmm. He he had Simon Draper on it a, a month or two ago, and I listened to it, and he was very complimentary about XTC. I remember when when that subject came up. That's good to know. But he was always very supportive, and uh, I think had he not been head of A and R at that time, <clears throat> we might have gotten our marching orders a lot sooner. Well, he was kind of de facto head of the label, really, yes. because Richard yeah. Branson wasn't actually very interested in music. No. And Simon was a sort of cousin a cousin of his from South Africa, wasn't he, yeah. who was mad on music. And if I remember rightly, the three albums that I was involved with, with, with you guys, I don't remember any record company intervention at all, really. No one would come down and say... Um, you know, uh, we don't like this, or you're not doing that, or or would you do this? Or no, they were they were quite um, <clears throat> hands off in terms of uh, our working methods. They never insisted that we do cover versions of somebody else's songs, which would have been the death knell for any band. I think when you know when the inspiration is that low <laughs> that you're being forced to cover somebody else's somebody else's work that's uh, that's when it's time to give it knock it on the head i think but no they they didn't interfere uh, no they were, they were good yeah um i'd like to mention another song of one of my favorites on on the album is also no thugs in our house i love that song it's got a fantastic energy to it again terry plays the the arse off his drum kit, doesn't he? He does. And and every everyone does. And it's 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 um I, I love that song. It's the rockingest song on the album. And yeah. uh it was a single, it didn't get very far, it didn't uh, well we didn't top of the pops it, that's why. Although I think we did play it on the whistle test. We did a live version on the whistle test, believe it or not. Uh, okay. And um what I remember about it was the uh, that big thuggish guitar riff that I play. Yeah. We, uh, we wanted it big and even bigger than big. So we put, I had this Marshall 50 watt bass amplifier that I'd been using, but it was, it was just like, you know, everyone who, anyone who knows those old Marshalls know how loud they are. I mean, just unbearably loud. Yeah, and you have to, to get a good sound out of them. They have to be cranked. Yeah. But once they're cranked, you can't get within 50 yards if you want to keep your hearing. It's just ridiculous. So we rigged it up in the stone room, the new stone room at the back of the studio. Yeah. And uh, you had your microphones up in the far corners, up in the ceiling there. And one, an SM57, maybe six feet from the cabinet. And so I just cranked the levels up, closed the door with a long cable, stood outside the door with my guitar because there was no way I was going to stay in that room with that level of noise coming out of the amplifier. And that's how we got sound for, for, for no thugs, the guitar, the, the, that big thuggish riff. Yeah. Uh, but even so it was tamed in the mix. You, I, I, I didn't think it really, you wouldn't have known exactly how 
ear-shatteringly loud that was from listening to the, the final mix. But it works with the track, obviously. But being a guitar player, I wanted it even bigger. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologise 40 years later now. <laughs> it works, you. Don't apologise. <laughs> but if we put, put the guitar up really loud, then everything else like the drums would have then sounded small. Yes. <laughs> but actually the acoustic guitar sounds pretty damn big. That was the first song we recorded. Do you remember we had this rotten Italian acoustic guitar, this Eco Rancher, uh, that we'd used on Drums and Wires and Black Sea for the occasional uh, acoustic guitar tracks. And we'd started using it on, on these new songs. And I remember one day you said, uh, I think we, I can't remember what the song was we were working on. It might have been Yacht Dance. And you threw your hands up in despair and said, this guitar sounds shit. You're gonna have to get something we can use, can't you? Like, this must be. Can you? Can you? Somebody go shopping for a decent acoustic guitar. Mm. So we uh, we conveyed this message to management, and I was provided with uh, four hundred pounds in cash, dispatched to London the next day to shop for what I hope to find a, a Martin acoustic, a used Martin acoustic, yeah, which I eventually found, and brought it back to the studio. And you just put a U47 in front of it and said, finally, <laughs> there was no work involved. We've got something <laughs> we can use now. What are we going to do? And the first thing we did was no thugs in our house. And Andy did that sort of Eddie Cochran, bad da ba da And yeah. uh, all the problems were over for, as far as acoustic guitars were done, were concerned. And I think the following day, Andy had to replace all the acoustics he'd recorded on that uh, eco guitar. <laughs> With, with the proper thing, with the real thing. <laughs> Guys, I, I just wanted to say thank you for, for No Thugs because um, from English Settlement, it was the song we played most in our house because just purely the line, um, making little Graham promise us he'd be a good boy. My older brother Graham loved this song, played it nonstop. XTC were quite clever using names in songs. Obviously, Nigel's the, the obvious ones. Uh, and I wondered if that was... Uh, just uh, an, an accident or if it was a ploy I, I've never I've never thought about it you'd have to ask Andy he wrote yeah. it uh, but uh, I don't know no I think he um, yeah it, 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 Nigel's and Gray actually I get accosted by Nigel's all the time for ruining their school days because of uh, that, that the, the song making plans for Nigel but I haven't heard any uh, adverse comments from Graham's over the years so maybe that's flown under the radar. Um, but no, I don't think there was any deliberate uh, issue with people called Graham. It just <laughs> happened to fit the lyric that Andy wrote. We're only making plans for Graham. <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite work, does it? My brother was delighted with the Graham reference. Just, just Oh, good. <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. No harm done there. <laughs> You, you you were described as a co-producer and XTC as a co-producer. What what was the negotiation there? Because you and as you've already described, you were relatively new to producing. You you had a lot of experience as an engineer. What was the kind of diplomatic relationship between your input and their input? Well, gosh, that's a very difficult question, really. I I mean, I, I'm I'm not the sort of producer like. Trevor Horn or somebody who who you know becomes sort of bigger than the band. I, I like to think that I'm the sort of guy we just get on with it together. I don't really know what producing means. I mean, 
you know, I, I, I started getting into producing because I was sort of fed up sitting next to people who didn't really know how to produce. I'm not certainly not talking about Steve, but other people um, when I was working at Virgin and engineering. And I just thought, well, I can do this as well as as that producer and asked Simon Draper, uh, you know, could I make a record or two with some of his junior bands? And do you know what, Dave, the first production actually I ever did was an EP with the guy who you replaced. Barry Andrews. Barry Andrews. That was literally the first producing job I ever did. And so for me, it was really just having a sort of rapport with the band and, and you know, me trying to realise from a sonic point of view what, with what comes out of the speakers at the end of the day, what the band is trying to achieve and getting the best out of, out of the songs. And, I mean, nowadays producers tend to be writers as well because um, just because of the way the music business has changed and, and you don't really sell physical records anymore in those days. The producer, the only income he got was was um, from royalties of sales of, of records. But as Dave was saying at the beginning of the day, one one never I, I certainly never made records with the idea of you know making money. One was just lucky enough to be doing a job that you loved, you know, rather than working at the Honda factory in Swindon or something. And um so, yeah, producing, um, I, I always remember Miles Copeland, actually, the manager of the police, saying to me, oh, I don't know why, you know, what's your name on the record as co-producer or produced by you and the police? Uh, producer doesn't do anything. He said that, did he? Yeah, <laughs> but that's, 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 that's classic, really. Dear me. He he didn't he he didn't like the idea of producers because he didn't like the idea of the money being shared out exactly. that's what to another person as well. No, no that's right. That's that's what that's all about. But you know, we always felt that you and and Steve Lillywise as well, when we were working together, we were you were every bit as important a part of the team as anybody in the band. You know, it went from being four guys from Swindon to a six-piece group making a record. I never thought of you as being, uh, you know, doing a job for us. You were part of the team. And without yeah. you, those, the, the record wouldn't have been made. So that's a producer and an engineer. That's that's their role, is to um, help bring the music of the band to the public's attention in the best way possible. Yeah, and that that was what made it such a happy experience to be in in the studio i mean i you know not wanting to go away from xtc but the last album i made with the police synchronicity is a great album but the atmosphere in the studio making it was pretty poisonous a lot of the time so you know it can work both ways um but it, it it's um certainly one of my fondest memories was 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 making english settlement that's for sure and dave do, do you have there's the same question to you about your relationship with hugh specifically for english settlement so you'd establish that relationship with with hugh and, and steve lillywhite on the first two but then the, i presume there was something that made 
you as a band say, yeah, but we want a bit of a credit here as well on the production side because you had a vision of what you wanted? I think because of the amount of work that uh, particularly Andy Partridge did in preparing the songs for rehearsal and then what the band did in rehearsal in terms of the arrangements and uh, sorting and just, just learning parts and creating new parts, I think Hugh would agree that he never instructed us uh, in sort of musical terms as to what we should or shouldn't be playing. He might have done on occasion, just now and again, just to tidy things up. But, you know, we decided, I think, at that time, we'd already done the production work. We just needed someone to get it onto tape and, uh, and make it sound as good as it possibly could be. And, uh, and um you know, it's, and it's like Hugh says nowadays, producers tend to be in charge of everything. They tend to be writers. They bring in, a, you know, maybe half of them nowadays, bring in a team of writers and programmers and what have you in order to uh, create a track for a single artist who gets all the all the credit, as it were, but actually uh, d- doesn't do that much. Uh, you know, the producers do most of the li- heavy lifting. The artist is just there to have their voice auto-tuned and to look pretty and, and sell the record. But that, I'm sorry, I'm digressing now. No, I'm not suggesting for a minute that Hugh is one of those. It all changed. With, with the advent of iTunes, it changed where you could cherry-pick songs one by one, and mm-hmm. that was basically the beginning, in my opinion, one of the beginnings of the demise of the album, so to speak. Oh, yeah. And now, if you look at... Uh, albums although obviously there's there's actually a lot more sort of genres now but particularly in 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 the sort of hip-hop world there's no way that one producer works through a whole album I mean you know for, for us in those days the 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 band um chose me to work with them but we worked on an album together you know and we worked from the beginning of it to the end of it and 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 that was that was it, and I think it's it's a why the album sounds very coherent as well. Not coherent, what's the word? Um, cohesive. Cohesive. Sorry, not it's coherent as well, but it's cohesive. Yes, yeah, it's really coherent. <laughs> I would say a, a good team effort all round, and uh, I think uh, Hugh is uh, his, his expertise because he was getting better and better. I mean, you could tell. I could tell watching the way he worked how much more involved he was in every little aspect of the sound. Mm. But, you know, you you and Andy, the one thing I remember so well is that your sort of different ways of playing guitars, you had a real feeling of your part and his part and how they didn't mess with each other. Because one of the things sonically about making records is if you have too much stuff in one single range or 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 whatever you you don't hear either and and you guys were so clever at working out these guitar arrangements that didn't sort of get in each other's way oh we did our best not to step step on each other's toes and exactly uh, yeah yeah and so that also made my life easier as a either engineer or producer because you could make everything sound sort of clearer. Um, one of the nice things about XTC Records and especially this one is that you know instrumentally 
it, it all beds together as a, a a recording, a record, a song, or whatever. But sonically, you can hear pretty well all the time what you're playing, what Andy's playing, as well as listening to the lyrics or or, or, uh, or whatever. And not only that, but if you the, the other thing about English settlement uh, that differs from the later albums that we went on to make, there aren't that many overdubs. Most of it is kind of almost played live in the studio. There's a few solos, obviously, and percussion and stuff like that. But there's nothing very, um, it's it's not what I would describe as a, a kitchen sink production, as I might level that criticism at some of our later stuff. But English Settlement, I think, got the balance just right. And uh, even though, yeah, perhaps today you might, there's a couple of tracks I might want to do another mix on. As it, mm. as it stands, the original pressing of English Settlement sounds really good. And I'm really, really proud of the fact that we were able to put that out when we did, because it wasn't it didn't sound like anything else that was around at the time, did it, really? No. And what about the B-sides, Dave? Are the B-sides, you, would you have made some running order decisions about uh, Blame the Weather and um, other things that, were, that ended up uh, great songs, yeah. but um, slightly forgotten? That's about. right. Blame the Weather. I think that had the makings of a single. Um, I also loved uh, Tissue Tigers as well. I really thought that was a great little romp. Um, and maybe uh, I would have put Tissue Tigers, I would have replaced Down in the Cockpit with Tissue Tigers, perhaps, and, and Blame the Weather. But, you know, we only had four sides of vinyl. You've got to draw the line somewhere. Well, it does say something when, when a band can effectively throw away a song as, as, as good as either mm. of those, you know. I suppose the beauty for Blame the Weather is it, at least it was the B-side of the most successful single. So a lot of people maybe then at least did get to hear it. Yes, that's true. Yeah, there is that. Because B-sides tend to be, uh, they're not as neglected as people might think, you know. When you pay, I don't know, what what, what were singles in those days? 99p, I don't know. When you pay a quid for a single. Something like that, yeah. You want both sides. Uh, you you want two songs. You don't just want the hit. So, yes, you're right. It's, it's good that that was there. And people, because I think it is quite a popular song among fans. I think a lot of fans out there really like it. Yes, it's sometimes it's almost like... Um... It's, when you hear a B-side and you know it to be a B-side, an only B-side, you kind of think, oh, an editorial decision has been made to relegate this song to something B-ish rather than A-ish. And actually, that there may be a million different reasons why it's ended up there. Uh, but you, you can then think, no, but I really like that song. Mm. Well, there's an argument to say that uh, because Census Working Overtime was a, su- a success, more people heard Blame the Weather than they might have heard the album. And it was also interesting because you were there on the piano for the first time in a in a big way, and it it, it didn't sound like what you expected XTC to sound no, like. That's true. the The piano was, uh, yes, a fresh element for us at the time. We had used it on Black Sea just very very briefly, but as I've, I've said so many times uh, in in these interviews, discovering that pianos, the quality of the keyboards in most recording studios was way, way better than anything that I'd played up to that point, you know. So to have a Steinway in a perfect acoustic environment, just to sit at the keyboard and just find chords and play little melodies and everything and reacquaint myself with some of my piano tuition from years and years ago, suddenly I I was reborn. I thought, this is 
this actually sounds fantastic. I need to be working more at the keyboard because I'm loving what, what I'm hearing, even with my limited technique. Still sounds really nice. I'd like to get get, get back into this a little bit heavier. But because I don't, I never had a, a room big enough in my house to accommodate a, a proper grand piano. I never really took it any further. But every time we went to a studio, the first thing I would do, having parked my equipment somewhere, would be sit sit at the piano and just play for ten minutes and just enjoy enjoy this rich sound that you don't find anywhere else. You know, it's just. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that you would find in, in 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 a normal living room. I remember also talking about keyboards. Another story. Do you remember you had the um, mini Korg synth? <laughs> it served us well, that. And I can't remember if I I can't remember if I said something like you know why haven't why haven't you got a bigger one or something like that. And and you or somebody said, well, it was the only one left in the music shop in in Swindon, and it was cheap. <laughs> that would have made sense. Yes, it's quite possible that was the reason it was purchased. You know, it was early days of synths. Don't forget, and in fact, we did have a Profit Five. I was going to say, I'm sure you bought a Profit Five because that was one of the first polyphonic synthesizers. Yes, it was that you could actually play a chord on. Yeah. And that was uh, that was picked up on the last American tour that we did in 1981. Uh, actually, yes, about six months before we did the album, basically. Mm. So we used it to um, do the marimba sound on "It's Nearly Africa" and the and the floaty pads on "Runaways" and, yeah. uh, and a few yeah. other things as well. Yeah, the horn lines and stuff. Yeah, useful thing. The mini Korg was great. It'd probably be worth a fortune now. Well, it might be, yeah. Actually, people are buying vintage synths now. It's the way they've been buying vintage guitars and the prices have yes. been soaring and soaring. You couldn't give them away at one point oh, since. But who knows? I, I think a lot of, uh, yes, there's a lot of nostalgia involved in collecting old stuff. Certainly it is with where guitars are concerned. Yeah. Uh, but But I remember you had a pretty serious collection of guitars you know once you bought that Rickenbacker as well you know between you and Andy there was some really you know you had a Gibson three- well there's a whole heap more of them now Hugh I can promise you oh really <laughs> I got a house full of the bloody things but um that's my passion you know it's I just uh and it's it's nearly always old vintage stuff that I'm most interested in yeah uh, and um Yes, it's it's just been I've been lucky enough not having to have to sell anything in order to pay any bills, mm. and I only buy guitars when I can afford it. I, you know, I don't sort of put myself into hock just because I have to have something. You know, I wait until I can yeah. afford to pay for it, and uh, and and you know, they just I've just accumulated a lot over the years and uh, haven't actually had to part with very many. Good for you. Maybe we could just finish with a sort of rounding up observations about how you look back and and think of that. I mean, Hugh, the third of three albums with with XTC, does it does it still? What position does it take in your memory? Well, it it it, it it's in my top two albums or three albums probably that I've made. I'm unbelievably proud of it. I think 
XTC has always been the most underrated band ever. And I, I just thank the Lord that I was around in the right at the right time in the right place to be able to work with such a great band you know that's that's the way I look at it and um I know it sounds very sort of fawning and stuff but I mean it you know well thank you Hugh that's very very um very complimentary and very flattering bearing in mind the work that you've done since which has been incredible I mean the fact that uh, when we loaded into the manor in October 1981 you had two albums uh, the Police at number one, which I think was Ghost in the Machine, and at number three, the Genesis Abacab, or was it the other way around? But those two albums were top five in England, and yet here you were working with four weeks from Swindon. And I said, <laughs> thank you very, very much, Hugh. It's very, really, really so glad you could have joined us because that record wouldn't have existed without you. And, oh, well, you're very kind. No, and um, you don't play your own records very often. But um, doing prep for this podcast, I obviously listened through to it a couple of times. And that's when you go, oh, my God, that, that was such a good album. You know, and the band was so good and everyone's playing was like, oh, my God, I, you know, it's just amazing, you know, and, and you realise how blessed I was to be able to be a part of all that at that time, you know. I also think it was the happiest that the four guys in XTC were playing and being together because it was before, really, you know, we were still a band. We were still supposedly a touring band. Uh, we were still very much a group of people with a single idea, a single focus, and we all we were all still friends and getting along famously, and uh, then you became part of that. So it was a very very happy time. I don't yeah. I know we, there were a couple of grumbles, there were a couple of uh, hissy fits, not many, not as many as there had been perhaps a few years later. But I remember the whole process and working at that wonderful place at the Manor, which was uh, I think a magical place. Not just the studio, but the house as well and everything in it. Really amazing place. And uh, like, like you say, I think we were all really, really blessed at that time to have, to have had that environment to work in and that music yeah. to work on. And to come out of it with a record that good, it's, it's well, that's, that's why you do what you do. Well, thank you. But it takes everyone, you know, you know, and e even the the kitchen staff and everything. You know, it was just it was just a good vibe, wasn't it? Very much. It so. was a good vibe. Yeah. Um, just a quick question, which may not be relevant, but was that the last record that Terry played on, the last XTC record? No, he played on uh, two songs on the following album, Mama, and he we'd gone in to do a couple of singles or, or a couple of tracks as uh, you know, a bit like we did with, with Settlement when we worked with Alan St Wynn Stanley and uh, um, who was it, Clive Langer. We did Ball and Chain and Punch and Judy as a precursor to the album, which the record company didn't like. We did a similar thing with the Mummer album and we did Beating of Hearts and Wonderland, those two songs, which were the two songs that open up the Mummer album. 
Mm. Terry worked on those. He played on those two songs and he did some B-sides as well. I think he played on Toys or Desert Island, which later came out as part of an EP package. Um, but then that would have been around about September of 1982. And I think he quit in the October or November time. I mean, it was early winter of 82. Mm. And then we had to find another drummer and um, and we worked with this producer, Steve Nye, okay. who had a very, very different sort of uh, work ethic. <laughs> he was fine, actually, Steve. I like him a lot. I think he did good work, but I, whether he was right for XDC, I don't know. But mm. some mm. people say yes, others not so. But, you know... It was it. We were we were just sort of moving on and uh, trying different things. We were always, you know, sort of exploring. I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's extraordinary hearing the two of you thanking each other for the work that you did on that album. Because I just want to say thank you for forty years of listening pleasure. If anybody's got any thanks to give, it, it's to me, and I'm, I'm sure Sue will agree <laughs> with that. Um, and everybody listening to this podcast. So thank you very much for for forty years of English settlement to Hugh, to Dave, and also to to Sue for asking such fantastic questions. Thank you, uh, Sue, for that. Uh, this has been what you call that noise, an XTC podcast, and uh, we'll be back again next month with even more XTC goodness thank you for listening thank you thank you bye-bye thank you for having an xtc podcast yes thank you for listening what do you call that noise why do you call that noise thanks again to sue dave and hugh what a conversation that was and many many thanks to the podcasters supporters on patreon who make it all possible including the following nights in shining karma terry arnott kevin burt liam duggan jamie dunn Peter Fermoy, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlor, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusef Murra, Murray Meikle, Kevin Murray, Karen Neal, Amy Parkinson, Doug Perry, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatehome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, and Nigel Waller. If you'd like to support the XTC podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thank you very much for listening. Back next month with more. See you then. Bye.